Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. What's up? How we doing at the 9 a.m.? I got caught in a traffic jam on the way out to the stage. So, uh, so glad you guys are with us. My name is Bryant Lee Pastor. If you're watching, um, wherever you're watching from, listening via unfiltered radio all over the state, um, everywhere via podcast, in the house today, we start a brand new series um, that is relevant to you. And I don't even know many of you because uh, I just know real life and being human. And that is, actually, I'm gonna have you raise your hand on this and hopefully they didn't come with you. How many people um, have some kind of difficult relationship in their life? All right, you can be honest. And if they, if they came with you, it's going to be an awkward series. Like you're going to try to not have eye glances to the right or the left or whatever. I know this is also one of those series, I get this all the time, that it's not really going to be so much for you, but you're going to want to send it to the difficult person um, and try not to be shady about it. Like you should just listen to this. So I get all of that. Um, but that is what the whole series is about. And all of us just know that dynamic of being in difficult relationships, sometimes we chose them and didn't realize it. Other times we're just forced into them. We're not really sure what to do about it because you can't change the current dynamic. Um, but difficult relationships are really those people that they're obviously difficult to be around. At times they're controlling. Um, at times they are maybe even manipulative, deceptive, just not kind. Um, like not to, to go too far, it depends on the relationship, but you might use the terminology toxic like just really difficult relationship. And here's the thing about difficult people. We always wanna be nice where it's like, well, they're not a bad person. They, you know, they're a jerk sometimes and they, there's some anger issues and there's a lot of anger issues, but like they're, you know, we always try to find good in people. It's hard to just say that's just a bad person. Um, but we'll just say for this series, they're difficult. Like they're just difficult to be in relationship or maybe it's difficult in this season because of some stuff that's happened. Now, here's the other thing, just real quick. It's not to say that you've never been a jerk or that I've never been a jerk or that we've never been the difficult people in relationships um, because we have, but hopefully for a lot of us, like we're trying to move in a direction where we are emotionally and relationally healthy. And like, we don't wanna be that person. I don't wanna be the unkind person person in a relationship or in a group. I don't want to be that individual that everybody's trying to figure out how to work around because they're just there and they're not self-aware and it's just really, really difficult. But for this series, for these three weeks, what I want to talk about specifically is the difficult people in our lives, difficult relationships and how to navigate those relationships. Because at times it seems like we don't really have a lot of choice in terms of what to do. Now, here's the thing. In difficult relationships, people are just tough to get along with, tough to interact with. They, they always seem to force you into responses in such a way, at least that's how you feel. If you are not proactive and if you don't have a plan, in a lot of cases, those relationships and that dynamic just gets worse. Because here's the thing about difficult people in your life. They, in a lot of ways, gain a measure of control over your life or your life. 
Because there's certain things that, that depending on the emotional dynamic or what they do or the decisions that they're making around you, it just feels like a lot of times, anybody know what I'm talking about? You're almost forced into a response. In fact, you'll even say like, because of this, I had to respond this way. I mean, what else would I do? I had to react. I had to, you know, whatever. I had to say it. And it just feels like they force you into some kind of response and you don't have a choice because... Difficult relationships and difficult people always keep you off balance. They do. It's the same as like physically when you're off balance. You do everything that you can to like regain balance and regain control. And in that relationship, it's as if you are always off balance. You're always trying to find your equilibrium. And in fact, you're always compensating. Like that's what happens when you're in a really difficult dynamic. And it's why some people actually even say to you, like maybe somebody's close, that in a particular context, particular relationship, they'll say to you, you're like, you don't even seem like you're yourself. Like you never even act like you when you're around them. And the reason is because if that's a difficult individual relationship, you're always off balance and you're always compensating because of whatever they're doing. And it becomes very difficult if you're a follower of Jesus to maintain the golden rule, which all of us know the golden rule is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But it is difficult. Can we just be honest for a second at the 9 a.m.? It is difficult to do good to people who do not do good in return. It is really difficult to be sensitive. This is where I have a lot of trouble to be sensitive to people who are insensitive. It is really difficult to be kind to people who are unkind. And so the golden rule, all of that sounds great. I know that we applaud it. You sing about it. You might lift your hands, all of that. But when you get into a relationship where somebody is mistreating you, or worse, come on, when somebody is mistreating somebody that you love, I did not understand this dynamic until I became a parent. And like, I don't wanna be one of those crazy people, but specifically with my oldest girl, I've talked about this before. If you mistreat her in any way, like I turn into a psycho right? Like there's, it just, it just keyed something in me that I didn't even know was there. And so you mistreat somebody who is close to you that you love. All of a sudden the golden rule turns into the payback rule, which is do unto others as they have done unto you. Anybody? And come on, that's natural. Like I just want to be honest in this series. It's natural to treat people the way they've treated you. It's, it's hard not to do that. And in fact, and this is in the back of our minds, it, it feels, it almost feels equitable. It, at times it feels just, depending on how that person is, is responding and reacting. It, it feels like, again, it's your only option and that it somehow evens up the relationship a little bit. If you are in a, a toxic relationship or just a difficult relationship, it could be work, relationship, you know, whatever. And they're constantly reacting and responding one way. There's a part of it in order to regain your balance. You kind of want to even things up a little bit. That's just natural. That just seems right. It almost seems fair. But then there's this, just go with me for a second. When you're in a difficult relationship and you are mistreated by somebody, the issue with that is in some ways, or in a lot of those, you almost feel powerless because there's really, a, there's in some relationships, not a lot you can do. There's not a lot you can do to really make things different or make things equitable. And so in the relationships where you are being mistreated or feel like you've been mistreated, you are powerless in, to do anything about it. You tend to compensate in other relationships. And so, all of a sudden, we're in this place where I am compensating because of how I've been mistreated by you somewhere else with somebody else that has nothing to do with my issue. And because I am powerless and don't feel like I can really get back at you or take it out on you, I'm gonna take it out on you. 
And because I can't go back and really undo how I've been mistreated by you, sometimes inadvertently I mistreat you and you don't have anything to do with my issue. You don't have anything to do with this toxic relationship. This is why, this is one of the difficult things in marriage because sometimes you will find yourself in marriage or maybe just with your your boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're in a place where it seems like you have an unsolvable tension, an unsolvable like relational dynamic. And there's a part of that that's true. You can't solve it because there's some relationship dynamics that were carried in from other seasons and other people. And they think the issue is you, but the issue is actually unresolved treatment and unresolved, just relational dynamic that's never been dealt with. And because you felt powerless, because you felt like you couldn't even the score, because you felt like there was no way to kind of get things back, you take all of that angst and all of that energy and all of that tension, and now you are moving it onto this relationship over here. And you mistreated me and I can't get back at you. And so I'm mistreating you as a result, and then you end up with this, you do unto others as someone else has done unto you. In a lot of cases, those others don't have anything to do with that relationship. They don't have anything to do with that person, but they're suffering as a result. So the question is, what do we do with difficult people? Like it may be an ex, it may be an irresponsible sibling or in-law, it might be a mother-in-law, it might be a boss, it might be a neighbor, it might be somebody that like you figure out which service they're going to. So they're at the 11 a.m. today. And so you're at the 9 a.m. Like it's the sole reason you're here. But like, what do you do about difficult people? Like there's a couple options real quick. The first one is that you kind of have imaginary conversations about them and you think about all of the ways that you want to even the score and get even right? And so your imaginary conversations always have you saying exactly what you want to say, when you want to say it, perfect one-liners, you shut them down. They're like, you're right. I'm sorry. I am a toxic person. And like, generally there's a crowd around the watch and somebody's tweeting it. Like that's how those conversations go. But here's the thing about like all the imaginary conversations about getting even. When you get even with difficult people or we get even with toxic people, when you get even with them, you're even with somebody that you don't even like. You become like somebody that you dislike. And so for all the, that's gonna make things better, I'm gonna feel better. What you do is you move yourself to the level of their relational unhealth and you become somebody that you don't even like. And then the second thing that you can do is, is actually just kind of go to the, the position of ignore them, which in most cases is impossible. And it's unbelievably unhealthy. Now we'll talk about in week three, the dynamic of, of should a relationship even continue? Because here's what this series is not saying. There are certain relationships that should end. There are certain relationships that should have boundaries. I'll talk about boundaries in week three of this series, but the worst thing that you can do is just ignore because here's what happens when you ignore difficult relationships and difficult people. Eventually they will chip away at you and they will wear you down and they will get to the place where all of the sudden something happens and you get so broken down and so angry that you react to them and then in your reaction, you actually give them more power. You know what I'm talking about? And so it does not lead anywhere good. Ignoring them is not the way forward. Getting even with them is not the way forward. And so fortunately, 
there's a third option. And here's what I want you to get, whether you do anything with this, because you get to the end of this week and next week, and you're still like, well, you don't understand how much of an idiot they are, and maybe I don't. But there's a third option that decreases their power over you. And what I think all of us need to see is so important, it decreases the power that that individual has over other relationships in your life. And it allows you, and this is so huge, to begin to move to a place of health to protect your heart and to not lug their baggage around with you into your relationships. And it allows you to begin to set yourself up to write a better story for your life and for your relationship. Here's the tragedy. Difficult relationships, if you don't deal with them the right way, they have the potential to impact every other area of your life. And you're not even the difficult person. It's them, but your response changes everything. This is exactly what Jesus taught throughout the New Testament. And it's exactly what was modeled in the Old Testament through a specific character that I wanna look at um, in narrative for the next two weeks. And this character is pretty unknown except for their link and tie to King David. If you know any of the Old Testament, if you don't, just go with me for a second and I'll catch you up. But this narrative that I wanna talk about or this event that really unpacks this so well, it doesn't happen during the era of King David where he's ruling Israel. It actually happens during the era of fugitive David. So if you know any of the story, and you probably do, um, the famous like David kills Goliath. He's basically a teenager at the time. He's a really young dude, um, has this epic battle. He takes down Goliath. He immediately becomes a national hero. So everybody loves David. They're writing songs about David. Uh, They want to follow David. And so David is in this position where he makes King Saul incredibly jealous of his fame and the fact that he has hero status. And then to make it worse, there's this rogue prophet that King Saul finds out. And King Saul was the king of Israel at the time. This rogue prophet in Saul's mind had anointed this teenager David as the next king of Israel. And so for Saul, that was a threat to his dynasty, which was a really big deal. So he goes so out of his mind that he tries to kill David David goes on the run and ends up basically a fugitive in the wilderness. And then he starts to collect about 600 other people who go with him that become fugitives and outlaws because David still has influence. Like David was the man in Israel. Everybody knew about David's military prowess. And so 600 people who were also really disgruntled about how Saul had treated them go and end up following David basically into the wilderness. And David, rightfully so, is angry and he is ticked and he's been mistreated in every way because he brought incredible value to the nation of of Israel. He led incredible military victories and wins. And now he is on the run for no reason because Saul is maniacal and crazy. And so David is angry and David is looking at somebody to take his frustration out on and he finds the perfect victim. And David, basically David's biographer, which is who this was, recorded this event in the life of David this way in 1 Samuel 25, 2. And if you've got a Bible, you can look it up on your phone. Um, Or if you've not downloaded the Centerpoint Church Florida app, you should do that. It's all right there. So 1 Samuel 25, 2, you guys still with me? To 9 a.m.? Okay. Uh, Here's where it picks up. A certain man in Moan who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, which is, I mean, that was a sign of wealth. And I just always think of this, if they're those little Nigerian dwarf goats on YouTube that hop around that you can milk, that's amazing. So he had a thousand goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel, and his name was Nabal. 
which by the way, I don't know why I do this, but I pronounce his name all different ways. So you'll hear me pronounce it three different ways in this message. I don't know why I do that. So um, here's what was going down. They're sheep shearing. And in this culture, we don't really understand this, but this is what wealthy people did. Like you go, like look at your financial portfolio, see how you've done over the last year, um, how your cryptocurrency is performing, like all of that stuff. They sheared sheep and they figured out how much profit they had made over the last year and how much they had grown in wealth. So basically they're getting an update on their financial portfolio. That's what um, Nabal is doing. So um, his name was Nabal, his wife's name was Abigail and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman but her husband was harsh and mean in his dealings. Like this dude was savage. He made a lot of money for a reason. He got his thousand goats, you know, by, he was pretty shifty and shady. In fact, his name means heavy, which just means this guy was a burden to work for, a burden to work with, a burden to be married to. He's just one of those difficult people. He's toxic, he's annoying. Nobody liked working for him. And so verse four, while David was in the wilderness after fleeing from Saul, He heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And so he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Basically go to him and say, hey, we come in peace. We're not trying to do anything. Like we don't have any ill intent. And then say to him, long life to you. Basically like suck up to him. Good health to you in your household. Good health to all that is yours. And when your shepherds were with us, We did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. And so basically here's what David through his messenger is saying um, to Nabal is that you, you had a lot of profit this last year for a reason. And basically you may not know this, I helped you because I have 600 men. And I made sure that none of my men raided any of your stuff or took any of your Nigerian dwarf goats. Like I made sure that you were left alone We protected you from other like bands of raiders that would come in and try to steal your stuff. And so basically part of your profit is due to my protection and my 600 men. So verse eight, David through his guys says, ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time and give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them, basically dude, you're going to have extra. You've made bank over this last year and we helped you do that. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your stuff, that'd be great. Like, I think you owe it to us to give us a little slice of this profit because your profit margins would not be where they're at if it wasn't for us. And so verse nine, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited to see what his response was gonna be, to see what he was gonna do. And they waited on purpose because Nabal made them wait. Now, here's the thing about David that kind of disrupts some some of our Sunday school teaching if you grew up in that environment or maybe the little bit that you know about David because we love to airbrush the scriptures. I talk about this a lot. We love to romanticize certain things. We, We kind of lose sight of the actual cultural context. David was a savage. David was a ruthless warrior. In fact, all throughout the, the Old Testament accounts, you'll see times where he was stationed in, um, the, with the Philistines and they would go out and they would raid these villages, this, these bands of individuals. And when David and his men would go into these villages, he wouldn't leave a single individual alive. He would kill everybody that was there. And so David was not a person that should be messed with. 
And so his biographer actually, a few chapters later, describes David this way that many of us miss in 1 Samuel 27, 9. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Like even, even by ancient standards, David was incredibly dangerous. And so after keeping them waiting and Nabal's there and they're just like, what's the response gonna be? How is, how is he gonna interact? Nabal finally sends back his answer. And in verse 10 of chapter 25, here's what he says. Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days, which is like, he knew exactly who David was. But he's like making a point of, hey, your master's nobody. How dare you even come ask me this? He's on the run. He's a fugitive right now. There's fugitives every single day. He's an outlaw. I didn't ask for his help. I don't owe him anything. Which honestly, if you're dealing with David, I would have thought twice about that. Like just be happy with your goats. Give him a, you know, a little bit of the profit and go your way. But he doesn't respond that way. And so verse 11, why should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from like who knows where? which is completely disrespectful to David because everybody knows who David is. They write songs about David. And so verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And then this is really important. David said to his men, not, okay, well, we tried. I mean, it was a good try. Like we, you know, wanted to see what would happen and see if he'd give us anything. Like that, that wasn't David. They come back and they say, hey, Nabal basically has disrespected you. Um, he's talked about like, who's, who's David. And so David's first and initial response is go get your sword. So each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And this is really important detail. And David straps on his as well. Now, when you read the scriptures, you just run by little sentences like that. Cause like, I, you know, that's a lot of detail. I get it. Everybody's got their sword. David's got his sword. There's a reason that David's biography, biographer mentions specifically that David strapped on his sword personally. Because David's sword was unlike any other sword. In fact, in this moment, this should have been a reminder to David that he did not need to take matters into his own hands. That he did not need to react. That he did not need to repay. Because do you know where David got this particular sword that he picks up in this moment and straps to him? He got it in the whole affair with Goliath. He got it after slaying the giant and he took Goliath's sword and that became David's weapon. And in this moment, he picks up the sword that is a visual reminder and marker in this moment of God's promise. It was a visual reminder in this moment of God's protection against a giant that was threatening the nation of Israel and nobody was willing to go up against him. And this little 16 year old kid who believed that God had promised Israel something specific and something special faced the giant knowing that God would intervene, that God would come through, that God would do his thing. It was a visual reminder of God's promise, God's destiny, God's will, God's protection that God had called David. And he's sitting with that sword in his hands. And it should have been a reminder that I can call out to God in any moment and he's gonna intervene. He'll lead me through this. And I don't know how Nabal's gonna respond, but I know that I'm gonna be okay because God's already proven that. God has already fought on my behalf. God has already come to my defense in so many ways. But David is so angry 
and he's so hurt. They didn't see any of that. And he's just listening to me for a second. He's so angry and he's so hurt that he's completely forgotten about God's provision. He's completely forgotten about what God's called him to do. He's completely forgotten about what God has already done in his life. And so he powers up and he redirects all of his frustration and all of his anger that's actually at Saul. And he takes all of the anger and frustration at Saul, who he is powerless to do anything about, who is untouchable. He can't really get even. There's no way to create equity in that relationship. And he takes all of that angst and he superimposes it onto Nabal. And it says this, once David and his men grabbed their swords, about 400 of them went up with David. And if you were to read the story, it was an overreaction of epic proportions. I mean, Nabal was a jerk, but it was an overreaction of epic proportion. It was completely disproportionate and it became a massacre. And we know this. I mean, you've heard this so many times. Hurt people hurt people. Hunted people hunt people. And David is in this position and you see it in the text where then he starts to basically try to justify in his mind what he's not 100% certain that he should do. Have you ever done that? And you're running through your mind all they've done and all of the consequences and the decisions and what they said and the fact that they've treated them or treated you so badly and you're going through the whole thing again. You start to have imaginary conversations and you start to shut them down and create arguments that's gonna end everything and it's gonna change them and they're gonna realize what a jerk they are. David starts to run through all of this stuff knowing that what he is choosing to do, like he's not really sure that he should do it. And so verse 21, David had just said, it's been useless. He's talking to his men. All my watching over this dude's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing and he's paid me back evil for good? Are you kidding me? So may God deal with me, be it ever so severely if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. You serious, man? That's a little disproportionate. Like that's, I mean, this is not a good example, but that, that's like you sitting at the table and like everything's good and somebody asks you to pass the ketchup and you just lose your mind. Because it has nothing to do with anything that's happening in the moment. It has everything to do with like you're carrying stuff that's now, it's now permeating and infiltrating other relationships in your life. And those relationships start to become difficult, not because the tension is in that relationship, but because you carried it from another relationship in another season. So here, here the stage is that you got two characters and you got two responses and you have no heroes. <laughs> you got Nabal and you got David and, and Nabal returns evil for good. Like, like David did help him out. David was there. He did benefit. His profit margins were bigger because of David's men and David's protection. But he decides he's gonna choose evil and repay evil for good. And then you've got David who decides, I'm gonna repay evil for evil. And the reason I'm gonna do, I think if this was another season and another time, it may have been different. But because David was already caring so much in that moment, it felt like his only response and his only reaction, it's kind of, I can't take this anymore, was to repay evil for evil. And Nabal ended up maniacal and crazy. And David ended up doing what was completely predictable. 
and listen, I, at some level, I get it. Like, I don't get it because I don't know your story. So I never want to like sit down with somebody and go, I get it. I understand everything. In fact, I, I avoid that at all costs because even if a story seems similar, your context is always different. But all of us have some kind of common thread of understanding really difficult relationships. And there are moments and there are seasons and there are responses where it almost feels like we are forced into repaying evil for evil. And what you find out is, and it turns out that that's not the only option. In fact, next week, I wanna look at this third option and like you need to invite somebody, you need to bring somebody here because you've got a friend, you've got a neighbor, you've got a coworker and they're struggling through all of this right now and it gives us a better way and a better way forward. So you need to invite them, you need to be here. But here's what I wanna do between now and then. I have four questions that I wanna give you and then I'm gonna be done. And these four questions, I think are four questions to start to consider when you consider your response to those difficult people your response to those toxic relationships, those response to those people they are like, I don't know what to do with them and they have zero self-awareness. And I would encourage you to do this because it's so important. I would encourage you seriously to take some of these questions and sit down with your kids and begin to teach them to your kids. Because here's the reality sometimes as parents, and we don't really mean to, is that when our kids are hurt, when our kids are mistreated, when something happens with them, it's easy for us to project on them what we want them to do where we start to actually push them and move them in the direction of, no, no, you should just get back. You should, and we kind of disguise it as, you should stand up for yourself. You should whatever. And so you start to, to kind of mold them and shape them and direct them in this position of, you need to repay what has been done to you. You need to sit down, I think, seriously, and go over some of these with your kids. In those difficult relationships they probably already have or those difficult relationships that they're moving toward because none of us are gonna escape this. And the four questions are just this real quick. The first one is, do you really wanna be even with somebody that you don't even like? And I'm not saying they're not worthy of love and not made in the image of God. You can love somebody and not like them. But if we're just really honest, there's difficult relationships that you have to navigate around and you don't, you don't like that person in the sense of, I don't wanna be like them. Do, do you want to be like somebody that you dislike? And here's the thing hurting them, responding in kind at some level, it doesn't end the cycle, does it? It perpetuates the cycle. And what, what we can't emphasize enough is it moves you to the level of relational unhealth. Like you, you end up moving in the direction of this person and taking on their persona, taking on their character, taking on their toxicity and their baggage. And the thing is, you can't ever localize it to that relationship. It's baggage you're gonna carry. It's stuff that's gonna move with you. It's gonna travel into other seasons and other relationships. And in a lot of cases, you don't even know it. Here's one of the tragedies is sometimes you get into conflict in a relationship and you've carried it from other relationships so long, you don't even remember its original source. You just have conflict that has gone unresolved and now it's moving into these other relationships, but it has been done, dealt with for so many seasons, you don't even really remember its origin story. Like, do you want to be like the people you don't even like? Do you want to move to their level of relational unhealth and be like them? And the second question is this. Wouldn't you rather be ahead? Don't you want to be unlike the person that you don't like? And I get this. Listen, none of this is intuitive. 
None of this is like we just choose this by default, but the only way, and by pulling ahead, I just mean to be relationally healthy, to set a boundary to go, this is not gonna come with me. I'm not gonna carry this. I'm not gonna sabotage my relationship. I'm not gonna sabotage my future parenting with my kids. Come on, some of you know this. It wasn't even your thing, but you are now trying to break multi-generational relational unhealth. Wouldn't you rather be ahead? The only way to do that, even though it's not intuitive, is choosing to not get even. Choosing to not hang on to an offense in the sense of repaying evil for evil. And that is difficult. That's easy to talk about. It is difficult to do, but come on. It is the only way to end that cycle. It is the only way to draw that boundary. And again, as I said earlier, it may not mean that that relationship continue. If there is a way, and it's not always possible, but it may be that you need to move away from that relationship and move away from contact. That, there's a biblical precedent for that we'll talk about in week three, but come on. Wouldn't you rather be ahead by choosing not to respond in the way that they've responded and move to the level of their relational unhealth? And then the third question is a question that really is gonna come to light in the next part of this and a third character in the story that really baits David into asking this question. And I had this said to me years ago and it's never forgotten. I've never forgotten it. I've worked it into so many messages. So you've heard me say this before, but the question that we'll look at that David gets baited into next week in this narrative is this, that when this incident, this relationship or the, the specific dynamic of it that you're walking through right now, when eventually this just becomes a story you tell, what kind of story do you wanna tell? Like when this moment, this decision, whether I'm gonna pay back, whether I'm gonna respond, when this just becomes a story you tell, what kind of story do you wanna tell? When your response becomes a story that eventually you are going to tell, what kind of story do you wanna tell? You wanna tell the story of, I ended up just like the person I dislike. I ended up responding just like the person who is toxic and unhealthy because I allowed them to move me to a place of anger and then I carried it and I allowed them to chip away or I tried to ignore it or I tried to get even and eventually my anger caused me to react and then when I reacted, I just gave all the power over to them. That's not a good story. (laughs) That's not a story that you wanna tell. That's not a story that you wanna move forward. And then the final question I think is the most difficult And it's the on-ramp to pulling ahead. And I think it's where Jesus is inviting us to go. It's the question that honestly, in a lot of ways, the church has let go of. And we'd rather just create categories of people or hide behind parties or move to a place of giving seven rules rather than move to the radical, over-the-top, uncomfortable, frighteningly clear command and invitation of Jesus. And the fourth question is just this. What would it look like to return good for evil? In that relationship, and you may not even be ready to consider this right now because when I say it, all this stuff rises to the surface. Just, what would it look like to repay good for evil? Not just refuse to, to not react in kind. Not, not just, okay, I'm not gonna do what they did to me. Okay, that's great. What would it look like to go another step and actually be kind to the person who's been toxic? What would it look like to return good for evil? Or not, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna make sure that I'm not a jerk to them. That's, that's great. That's a low bar. And I get it. There's seasons where that's, we just need to cling to that. Like, God, help me not to be a jerk to them. 
But what if you went a step further and you took Jesus' word seriously? What if the church did this? What if we did this as Jesus' followers? If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do any of this. But as a follower of Jesus, we went a step further to go, I'm not just gonna settle for I'm not gonna be a jerk, but in the words of Jesus, this is so uncomfortable. It's so terrifying. It's so frighteningly clear. We easily abandon this and settle for other things. But Jesus' words, I want you to actually do good to the people who have mistreated you. Like, what would that look like? And I'll just tell you this. When you do good to people who have not been good to you, it frees you. And it frees up other relationships around you. But when you decide, I'm just gonna get even, I'm gonna repay evil for evil, I'm gonna ignore this, that is natural and that is predictable. And my invitation as we journey through these couple weeks, don't be predictable. Don't do what everybody else does. Don't write a predictable story. Write a remarkable story. Write a story that is worth telling your kid. Write a story that is worth telling your future spouse. Write a story that is worth telling other people down the road who can relate to your story, who are walking through some of your dysfunction and toxic relationships. Write a story that ultimately you wanna tell. Write a remarkable story that I think begins with that final question. And the four questions are this. Do you wanna be even with someone you don't even like? Wouldn't you rather be ahead in that relationship in terms of emotional and relational health? What story do you wanna tell? And then I think the determining factor on whether you tell a remarkable story, a story that you wanna tell, and for some break some unhealthy multi-generational cycles, it's that final question that's the most uncomfortable. What would it look like to return evil for good. That's what I want you to just sit with for this week. Like, what would it look like for you to return evil for good? Because come on, this is where it's uncomfortable for Jesus followers. Somebody should have told you. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling and inviting you to do for somebody else. And it may not change them. And it may not even mean that you should continue in the relationship, but it does mean that you can go free and that you can break the chains of emotional unhealth and toxicity in other relationships of your life. Because when you decide to follow Jesus and do exactly what Jesus has done for you, you are most like your heavenly father. And when you decide to move in the direction of modeling the relationships and the activity and the character of your heavenly father, it is an invitation for the spirit of God to intervene and work in your life in extraordinary ways. So what story do you wanna tell? And what would it look like, as difficult as it is maybe in this moment to ask this question, what would it look like to repay good for evil? Exactly what Jesus has done for us. Would you guys stand with me? And in part two, we're gonna start to look at the better option and the way forward. And then week three, we're gonna look at what, it look, what does it look like to have barriers in relationship for the sake of our health and for the sake of following Jesus. So if you would, wherever you're at, if you're listening via unfiltered radio all over the place, thousands of you right now, those of you um, via podcast, would you just pray with me in this moment in the house? Would you pray with me in this moment? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for, for what you are doing. And I understand when you talk about anything in regard to relational dynamics, there is tension it is hard, it brings up a lot of emotion, but God, I'm praying that through the course of these weeks that you would do what is one of the primary facets of your agenda, you would set people free. 
And so God, do your thing in a supernatural way. And I pray for those that are listening, that are watching, that right now are physically in the house that have never begun a relationship with you to come to the place to realize that Jesus, you are God, that you came to live a perfect life that they couldn't, that you died death on the cross that they should have died. And then historically you walked out of a grave alive. And the scripture says, all you have to do is transfer your trust from trying to earn your way to God and instead trust what God has already done. It's simply saying, I believe and I'm asking Jesus to save me and forgive me. And the moment we do that, we become a son and a daughter of God. And you begin to work in our life life in ways that would never be possible otherwise. And so God, do your thing among the people that are listening and watching right now. And I pray that you would so specifically speak to the very complicated relational dynamic that is whirling in their head right now and recognize that your invitation, the way forward in this, it is better, it is freeing, and it's ultimately what you're calling us to. And I pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.